Welcome everybody, time for another episode of Asher Sales Sense, brought to you by Asher Strategies. Hello everyone, Susan Finch here, your guest host for Asher Sales Sense, and I'm here with John Asher. We're continuing this wonderful expansion of the cognitive biases that salespeople face and that they must overcome. And in our previous episode, if you haven't listened to it, you're going to want to hear that first. We covered compliment bias, reciprocity bias, similarity bias, anchor bias, single option aversion bias, and choice paradox bias. And that was a wonderful episode and it made so much sense to me, John. I was really glad that you went through those as deep as you did, that we're not trying to cover them all in one episode. So today, what are we doing? So we're going to do six new ones. And those are the status quo bias, the rationale and consistency bias that go together like the single option aversion and choice paradox, clear distinction, active emotional engagement, and commitment bias. All right. Yay. <laughs> now, if you went to Wikipedia and just typed in cognitive bias, there's only 184 of them, <laughs> which is a lot. Yeah. And if you boil all those down and analyze them like our team has, because we're mainly engineers or technical people, then you can come up with 45 of the 184 that apply directly to sales, and in many cases, also to marketing. And there's a few that apply to marketing, but not sales. So we took, last time, we took six of the 45, and now we're going to take another six of those 45 cognitive biases that apply to sales. So a quick review of what we covered last time. The compliment bias. When you give another person a sincere compliment, a lightning bolt goes off in their brain. They remember it. And they remember you and they like you. The reciprocity bias means when the anytime anybody does something for us, our old brain tells us we have to figure out how to give back. The similarity bias goes back to when one human met another human in the in Africa, on the savannah, the jungle, they had to make a really fast decision. And so things that look similar to us, we're safe. Thing, things that look different, we're not. And the anchor bias tells us when another person hears the first of three or four presentations or three or four talks to three or four salespeople, when they hear the first one, their brain anchors on it. And then when they hear the presentation or talk from other salespeople, do they want to burn a lot of energy and change that anchor? Then the single option aversion means buyers are adverse to only taking one thing when you offer them one option because they can't compare it to anything. The choice paradox bias tells us that if you offer the buyer more than three options, their old brain becomes confused. And will a confused brain make a, make a decision? We, we know it won't. So now let's take a few new ones. Okay. First is the status quo bias. We've all heard of it. Mm -hmm. And so when you apply it to sales, it would be sound like this. So if you're looking for a new buyer and they're unhappy with their current vendor, this is a big opportunity for us. This is, this is great. If the buyer is happy or okay, and we want them to shift to us to get them to shift, will this be easy, difficult, or Real difficult. We all kind of know the answer. It'd be very <laughs> difficult. So again, the old brain 
prefers the uh, default position because it, it knows it's safe. Why change? And some of us have heard the term, you know, if it ain't broke, don't, don't fix it. Yeah. So the practical application is kind of interesting for this one. And that is, in many cases, your biggest competition is not your competitors. It's the status quo bias of the buyer in the buyer's mind. And it is a big part of why so many companies have what's called a clogged pipeline. Oh. In other words, you got all these prospects that sound good all the way up to the end, and they just won't pull the trigger and, and buy it. Now, here's the kind of the reason behind the status quo bias for buyers. Because buyers, all of us too, we, we know three things about change. There may be switching costs. So if you're trying to get a distributor to carry your products and they already have a co competitor, right. then our advice is tell the buyer, if you agree to take our products on and replace the ones you've got, we will buy the inventory of your current vendor. If the buyer agrees, they'll buy that inventory, sell it off at a discount, but now have a great new big distributor. That's the first thing you have to do. You have to handle the switching costs if there are any. Mm -hmm. Second, we all know change is painful. Even good change is painful. Yeah. And the country's full of where it used to be called change consultants. Now they're called transformation consultants. Because change, especially in larger companies, is so hard, you need a consultant to help you, essentially. The second thing you have to do is show the buyer that they do not have to lift a finger to make this change. You and your team will essentially handle everything. And then the third thing you must do is when you're looking at financial metrics, higher revenue, higher gross margin, higher profitability, say less costs, mm -hmm. buyers won't switch for a 4% difference. This is too much trouble to switch to get that little bit of difference. Right. And based on the challenger sales studies of the past 10 years, if you're going to get a buyer to shift whether they're happy or, on, or okay, the knee of the curve is about 15%. 15% okay. difference in whatever that financial metric is that's important to them. And so most of us know if we're selling products, if you decrease the cost by 15% to get a sale, in many cases, you've destroyed your margin. So we really don't want to do that. So the challenger sale tells us because of all this new technology or new processes enabled by technology, implement those and that's where you can potentially get that 15%. So that's a low down on the status quo bias, Susan. Well, I want to go back to the, that very last point. If it has to be at 15%, what do you do so that you don't have to give everything away? That's a lot. Yeah, you're right. So it means you pretty much have to have new technology. Right. Or new process enabled by technology that gives you that 15%. I mean, a, a simple example would be have a Zoom call with a buyer instead of a going in person. Okay. Much less expensive. Right. Much quicker. Right? I see. Yeah. Everything's good about that. Right. Not everything, but almost everything is good about it. Got it. So you're not folding all those additional costs into the deal. You're upgrading your company and mm -hmm. the processes to be able okay. to sell at a lower price. Got it. Okay. It usually means better technology, usually, or AI, or you know, those types of activities. 
The second one is clear distinction. And that's an activator that will light up the other person's whole brain. So an example would be if you and two competitors have are, are vying for an opportunity and and you're three good companies and so the buyer wouldn't have put you on the short list. Your other competitors are are good. They have reason, good experience, good quality, good service, good reputation, reasonable prices. So now the buyer has a difficult time choosing between the three. And then the buyer usually goes to negotiating the price, which is where we don't want to be. <laughs> if your product or service is unique, clearly unique, yes. the buyer will make a quick risk-free decision and the price is almost never mentioned. So that's why consultants have been beating up on CEOs and sales managers for about 50 years about having a clear distinction for whatever it is you're selling. Yes. So then the practical applications would be, and it's usually called a unique selling proposition. It's usually the name of your clear distinction. It's where you can say, we're the only, or we're unique in that. Right. So now when you think about us humans, you need to be different. Your product needs to be different. And your company needs to be different. If all those are different, you're on a great path. A practical example would be, our sales training company has three unique selling propositions. And if one of us is selling to a buyer, and we said something like this, we've been in business 35 years, we got great customer service, we got a strong engineering and design team, then the buyer's old brain thinks three words, all of the same word, and the first word starts with blah. So they hear blah, 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 because everybody <laughs> says that. Here's a better example. And this is one we can we have. If you can say we're the only global sales training company where every trainer is a former CEO, mm. now you're unique. Yes. And it means a lot to CEOs because instead of just getting a fluffy sales trainer, right. they're getting somebody who understands all aspects of business. A peer. Right? So yeah, up here. Exactly. Now, if for whatever reason you can't get a unique selling proposition. I mean, you really are selling a commodity or your market's been commoditized by the buyers. The second best way is highlighted with the Simon Sinek training. So Simon tells us all that every company can describe what they do. Every company can describe how they do it. Very few can describe why they do what they do. Uh. And if you have a compelling why for your company that your employees like, that your customers like, that your prospects like, you're on a good path, probably the second best path to have that clear distinction. The other benefit of it is when companies have a strong purpose or a strong why, it's very attractive to younger people. They want to join a company with a strong why or purpose. So the practical application, of course, is develop strong USPs and develop a why for your company. So that's the lowdown, Susan, on clear distinction. As I said, management consultants have been beating up on CEOs for 50 years about this. Right. Now we know the science behind it. It's interesting, though. What you just said brought back an old memory from when I had my art gallery in Laguna Beach. And I'm competing with all these other high-end galleries on the street. You know, right. People only have so much disposable income that they're willing to give up. And I had to come up with our unique positioning for our art. And it was an interesting 
thing that, and I'm sure everybody else could have said the same thing, but we said it. And we said, we want to make sure that the peace that you're inviting into your home is somebody you would want to have dinner with. Nice. And that closed more deals than any, it, it's so interesting, but it was the unique thing. And maybe they all could have said the same thing, but they didn't. And I knew their artists and you wouldn't want to have dinner with their artists, but it was, just, it was really an interesting proposition. But I think that that unique piece, it can't be stressed enough. Identify, like you said, 50 years. It's true. I run into more companies and the why, but when they do get to the why they light up. Exactly. So why aren't we making the why louder? Everybody, you get so excited because that's why you're doing what you're doing. And you want a simple why. So yes. if you take the, the why for our sales training company, mm -hmm. it's real simple. It's to make the complex simple. And, and this is an example of it. Taking all 184 kinds of biases, <laughs> boiling them down to the ones that really count right. and showing what the practical application is. Right. And you guys all do right. all the homework for everybody. You do exactly. all the research for everyone and just help everybody implement it. Exactly. Now, the next two go together. Okay. And they form the science behind another sales technique you have probably heard everybody, and that is always close the next step. Yeah. So most of us know when we're going to meet with a buyer, we want to figure out before we go, what's our objective for this meeting? It could be either close the deal or at least close the next step. Mm -hmm. Example, if a buyer has a five-step purchasing process, and let's say it's um, you, Susan, you're the buyer and I'm the seller. And you're working in a pretty good sized company, a couple hundred million dollars. And you have a five-step purchasing process. So I got to get through that. I got to convince you at each step. So if we were finished with step two, if I said, so Susan, based on our conversation, I'm going to go back and write a white paper or make a short video and send it to you. Am I going to lose anything? No, no. Better, I would add the rationale bias. And that bias tells us that we are much more likely to take action if the other person gives us a reason to take action. You may recognize how that applies to parenting. <laughs> so I'm going to add, because Susan, I want to make sure you can understand the terrific benefit our product would have on your operational efficiency. So that's better, but I still haven't gotten a yes. Then I'm going to add what's called the consistency bias. Remember, the old brain likes to stay consistent, keep saying yes, then the probability of getting the yes goes up. So then I'm going to add, uh, so Susan, when you get the white paper or video, will you take a look and get back to me? If you say yes, now I've closed the next step in the staircase to yes by using both the rationale bias and the consistency bias. Right. So it's kind of fun how in many cases, uh, a sales technique is consists of a couple of biases. But I, I do like too that you're incorporating and you hear it from the best of the best. It's not always about closing the deal. It's about getting the next step, the next meeting, the next conversation. Exactly. All right, two more to go. The next one is called active emotional engagement. And that will wake people up because a big part of our brain is our emotional brain. 
So as we all, I think we all know the, there's a reptilian or instinctive brain, the emotional brain, both have been around for millions of years, and the rational brain. The instinctive and brain and emotional brain are subconscious brains. They make decisions for us. We don't even know it. Rational brains, we're thinking. We're making pros and cons lists. We're trying to make trade-offs. And so in many cases, it's the emotional brain that will make the decision when you're dealing with another person. So an example would be prior to 5,000 years ago, before the written word, how is information passed down from generation to generation to generation? Stories. So our brains are wired for stories. So we now know from all this research at the Harvard Neuroscience Lab, the best way to wake up the buyer's old brain is with a customer story. And I'm sure most of the listeners have heard that the best salespeople are the best storytellers. Right. Actually, you know, so, so are the best executives. So then a practical application would be if you've got four salespeople and you're going to bring out one in six months and one in, say, another six months, well, let's get those stories written down so that there's 10 great customer stories that everybody can use. And when you onboard a new person, they've got them right, right away. They don't have to wait until they have their own stories. Now, the listeners may wonder, so what's the best architecture of a customer story? How do you tell it to get the best effect? So at Harvard, they took a group of buyers, told them a story, had these functional MRI machines on to see which positive and negative hormones lit up, and came up, told them the story a different way the next day and a different way and a different way. And so finally, they got down to the way to tell a story, the five elements of it, to best wake up the buyer's old brain. So you start with the buyer's need and any emotions expressed by them, not your emotions, the buyer's emotion. Then you relate the story directly to the buyer. Mm -hmm. It's a mechanical contractor, and you've served other mechanical contractors. Three, then you include the details of how you help them. So they can see you were you were really involved. Four, include the financial benefit the buyer got. And then five, tell the story about how the buyer's emotion was at the end. So I'll give a quick example. There was a prospect in Rockville, Maryland for us, a big mechanical contractor. I went out to see the VP of sales and we were building for and chatting. And he said, so I said, what's your biggest concern? He said, well, actually, been on board a year and a half. The industry average growth rate's 11%. We were at 4% when I came on. Now we're only at 6%. And the CEO was sharing the financial information about the company every quarter. In the last two quarters, he hasn't shared it. So I'm actually really worried about my job. So there's that emotion. Yes. His emotion, not mine. Right. And so my story, since we helped six other mechanical contractors, in the area, my story will relate to him because it's the same same industry. Then I include the details of how I helped them. Gave everybody the aptitude assessment, helped them get people around on the bus in different seats, did the sales training, and then include the financial benefit they got. The growth rate of the company then went to 22%, and then include the emotional reaction of the buyer, and that was he was thrilled with the results and got a promotion as senior vice president. So that's the elements of a great customer story. I know that there are people that have written books, you know, the, the seven 
stories every company, you know, every salesperson must be right. able to tell and all that. Do you help companies craft their stories? Oh, sure. It's, it's pretty easy when you look at the five elements. Right. Just kind of filling in those blanks. And here's the trouble. When you're trying to help a company and say, okay, tell me some great stories you've got and let's put it in the right architecture. In many cases, you're missing three of the five. Hmm. There was no emotion, nothing about the buyer's emotion up front, nothing about the buyer's emotion on the back end. And typically the financial benefits are not part of the story. And there can be reasons like you're in an industry where, uh, you know, it's an SEC rule. You can't share a story. You know, so there, right. there, there are examples where you can't. And of course, you can do it by industry. It doesn't right. have to naturally be by company. One thing that brought a little bit off the six items or the six biases, if you have worked with these types of customers many times and you're telling their stories, are they all competitors though? So are they going to think, oh, he helped them. How are they going to help us if he's helped them? Well, it could be, but in many cases, you can have stories of mechanical contractors you, you've helped in the Northeast. Right. Not other ones in Rockville. <laughs> Got or it. even in the DMV, you know, the District of Columbia, Virginia, Maryland, metropolitan area. There's enough of the pie. No, oh, yeah, a good question. All right, last bias. Okay. Called the commitment bias. So Berkshire Hathaway, we all know, a very successful company. Right. Their executive team for 50 years has used the best practice based on the commitment bias. And so... The stronger we commit to something, I think everybody realizes that we're more likely to follow through. Mm -hmm. So there's five steps to really achieving a commitment. One, make this intentional to commit to the goal. It's not be, you got it from a sales manager and that's your goal, but make an intentional commitment that you're going to achieve that goal. Then write the goal down. Retention goes up 40 to 70%. Three, Share the goal with your other team members, maybe your other people in the sales team. Four, share it with maybe your spouse or your partner. So you've got somebody else who knows about it and will assist you emotionally, perhaps, whatever it takes. And then, of course, periodically go over the, with your goal and where you stand with the sales manager. So Berkshire Hathaway's data is each one of those five steps gives them, their executive team, a 20% increase in goal attainment. Wow. All because of the commitment, just a simple commitment bias. So it's one thing to say, yeah, we got to commit, we're all committed. But there's actually five steps that really increase your ability to achieve that goal. I like that. I think I'm going to write that one down and tape it up by my monitor. And an example would be, it's what salespeople need to do to commit. Right. And of course, it's what sales managers, how they need to help the salespeople commit. So there's another six, Susan. I got a million of these, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know that we want to cover at least, what, 45, and you said? 45. All right. Yeah, we're a long ways away from that. <laughs> these are good. This is a good start. Now, are you uh, giving thanks. us these in priority order or in no order in particular? Well, the ones I've given were, are probably, you know, somebody says, how do you squeeze it down to the dozen that are most important? These are probably, these are like real important. Okay. All of them are important, but we, we don't have them in order of priority. 
But when we do the initial sales training, it's these dozen that we cover. Okay. You know, no time, they don't have enough time to cover all oh. 45, unless it was just a specific training on cognitive biases. Got it. And you don't want to give people too many because, as we all know, you, you want people to really get going on one or two or three, create new habits for a week or two, then take another right. two. So if you have gave them all 45 in the beginning, just be like, whoa, <laughs> how can I ever get there? Yeah, even going through, you know, a couple of these sets quarterly. Exactly. Would be good timing to allow people to kind of settle in with it and then bring them forward to the next group. Yeah. And so what it really takes is to um, create new habits. Yeah. So I don't know whether you remember it or not, but I gave you a compliment right at the start. I did remember. I know exactly what you <laughs> See? were doing. See, you, you were sincere that. and I knew what you were doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you're training me well, you know, I'm going to pay attention. I'll notice. But even knowing what you're doing, it still felt good. So thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. And I wouldn't have said it if it wasn't true. Well, everyone, one more wonderful, informative, helpful session with John Asher from Asher Sales Sense. Find out more at asherstrategiesradio.com or go to asherstrategies.com. Find John in all your favorite places, especially LinkedIn. Great. Great go to ahead. be with you. Oh, it's great to be with you, too. Over 200 correlation studies show that natural aptitude is the most significant factor in predicting sales success. Asher's Advanced Personality Questionnaire, the APQ, consistently identifies peak performers in outside sales, inside sales, sales management, customer support, and 17 other business positions. Go to asherstrategies.com today or call 866-833-9941. That's Asher Strategies at 866 833 9941